This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, December 19th, 2008. I'm Caleb Brown. Why don't markets for food function as well as they could around the world? And who pays the price when those markets are purposefully distorted? Sally James, trade policy analyst at the Cato Institute, offers her thoughts. Food prices generally seem to have hit their high in, in July and since then have, have fallen back from those historic highs. They're still high um, compared to, say, 18 months, two years ago, and it's still causing problems for poor people around the world, but they've certainly uh, deflated since the, the July when the crisis seemed to have hit its peak. In terms of the government's impact on the price of food uh, for good or ill, is it mostly unilateral policies? Is it bilateral trade agreements? Is it multilateral trade agreements that can be uh, that we could point to as uh, culprits for uh, for inequities in in food prices? Well, certainly, there's been some unilateral changes in places like the European Union. They've they've stopped, well, they've at least reduced the amount of say export subsidies that that were historically depressing world food prices. That that may have have some effect. Uh, but the biggest changes seem to have been, at least in, in terms of government policy, is this push towards using foodstuffs like corn and soybeans, other oil beans, as energy sources. Now, there's a lot of, I guess, uh, contra- controversy about how much those policies are responsible for the run-up in food prices. Certainly other things uh, like the, the fall in the, the dollar up, and, up until recently. Uh, the weather obviously has a, has a huge effect and we had some uh, terrible weather conditions in, in historically big exporting countries of agricultural commodities that can account for some of the supply disruptions. Uh, on the demand side, we've had growing demand for food. Um, that that also explains perhaps some of this fall in food prices since the July highs. In other words, the, the world economy is growing, the demand for food somewhat slowing. So that uh, combined with the, uh, the American dollars getting stronger, and of course a lot of commodities are priced in US dollars, so the commodity prices go, go down, uh, that might account for some of the slowdown in, in the growth of food prices. What it also means, though, and we need to keep in mind, is that the stocks of food are, are very low. What that means is there's not much of a buffer there. And if, let's face it, it's more likely that there's going to be a supply shock than a demand shock, it means that that, that buffer is not high. So in other words, food prices could well, in fact, go up very steeply again if there's a supply, if, for example, a weather adverse weather event in any of the major food exporting countries. In a recession... Here in the United States, Americans probably, even uh, though they know that perhaps U.S. policies are uh, raising prices of food uh, elsewhere around the world, push comes to shove, aren't going to be that concerned about it if it keeps the prices uh, lower here. Well, that's right. Of course, part of the problem now, though, is that the price of commodities, quite frankly, is more linked to oil these days than it is to food because the government in its infinite wisdom, has decided that we're going to pursue this, uh, I think, false goal of energy independence by growing our our energy sources. Uh, so we've seen, for example, corn production last year went up something like 20%. 
What that means is that farmers grow less of other goods, like soybeans, for example. There was a 16% fall in the production of the area, sorry, grown to soybeans. So those prices go up as well. So that also means there's going to be more volatility in these prices. Now, since July, uh, the futures prices for corn have, have gone down something like $2.00 because oil prices have gone down. So while it is true that Americans, who are obviously much much more, uh, I guess, able to weather the storms of food price increases, they're, they're richer, they spend a far lower proportion of their income on food than do, do poor people, it's also perhaps not true to say that it's the government food policies per se that are, that are driving a lot of this. It's more likely to be the energy policy. What's the WTO's role in all this? Unfortunately, the WTO's role is somewhat hampered by the mandate that was set for the Doha round negotiations in 2001. What we've seen, certainly up until recent years, is a long-term long decline in commodity prices. That has uh, worried food exporting countries, many of whom are developing countries. So when the Doha round was launched in November 2001, the mandate, it's kind of like a terms of reference for trade ministers about what they're allowed to negotiate about, was very much centred around a fall in commodity prices and about removing the sort of trade distorting subsidies that depress uh, food prices around the world. Now that's a good thing, don't get me wrong. But unfortunately, the world has very much moved on since the Doha round was launched. What a lot of countries are concerned about now is very high food prices. That has somewhat switched the emphasis of, of negotiators from the effect on producers. They're now starting to think about the effect of consumers of agricultural policy. And that's important, but unfortunately, it's too late for the Doha round. What that means is that countries such as Japan and Switzerland, they're net food importers, they're very worried about the, the role of government, for example, restricting the supply of agricultural commodities, they're taxing exports, they're prohibiting exports of some commodities in some cases. They're concerned about the effect that has on world food prices, it pushes them up. But unfortunately, the Doha mandate does not really allow for the sorts of discussions that would need to be had. The WTO does allow countries to temporarily restrict the export of, for example, foodstuffs under certain conditions. But those conditions were not really part of the Doha mandate. And when Japan and Switzerland raised the sorts of restrictions that countries are, are putting on food exports and their concerns about them, a lot of countries were resistant to opening up the Doha round. Effectively, what you're doing is kind of putting a chink in this in this mandate and countries are worried that if you start to unravel the terms of reference of these negotiations it will open up a pandora's box and the whole round could come unraveled that may or may that may in fact be a good thing because this round has not exactly been a success story of the WTO and certainly i think that the agricultural negotiations the way that they're going right now is in not a good direction and what I mean by that is the sorts of exceptions, rather than bringing agriculture into the mainstream and treating commodities like agricultural commodities like any other product that is traded, they're starting to introduce and indeed formalise exceptions. In other words, making agriculture, you know, certain commodities, giving them special status, uh, introducing all these sorts of exceptions to what you can and can't do on agricultural trade barriers. I don't think that's a good direction for the WTO to be going in. And in that sense, opening up the mandate 
or in other words, scrapping the round and starting again may be a good thing. But a lot of countries are resistant to that and therefore they're resistant to even allowing this slight change in the mandate and, and opening it up for negotiation in areas that they had not countenanced when the round was launched. Where my mind goes whenever I think about uh, high food prices is somebody who lives or a family who lives in extreme poverty in a very poor country mm-hmm. who essentially uh, may very well be outbid for their uh, a giant share of their caloric intake for the day. Certainly that's a worry. Of course, a lot of poor people in, in, in poor countries grow their own food. They're what we call subsistence farmers. They therefore don't participate in the market in any way. They can only gain from low food prices in the sense that they can the marginal cost of their production is higher than what they can buy their food at. Um, and to the extent that food prices go up, they can gain from exporting food. Now, as I said, that's only if they are able to take advantage of these good conditions. And in many countries, they are not. Places like India, the government interferes so much in the market and infrastructure is is so terrible that they're not able to take advantage of high prices Um the government in India certainly is concerned about subsistence farmers and that's been their one of their biggest, I guess, uh, arguments for not uh, being very constructive in the Doha round. But I think that's a false argument. As I said, subsistence farmers by definition don't participate in the market. They can't, they can't be harmed by uh, low food prices. So that's a false argument. Certainly a lot of development agencies are raising concern about the effects of high food prices, and that is a concern. But part of the problem has been that government policies up till now, particularly in the developed countries, have discouraged the types of investments in agriculture that would enable poor people to weather this storm. In other words, when the United States and and the European Union particularly uh, sell their products very cheaply, uh, they subsidise production, they produce more than what they can kind of sell at, if you like, fair prices, then that depresses world prices. Poor people have no incentive to invest in agriculture. They can't get a a price that covers their costs of production. So, in fact, what we're seeing now, now food prices are high, they're having difficulty capitalising on that. But that's because of historical past government policies that that have adversely affected them. Sally James is a trade policy analyst at the Cato Institute. Her recent bulletin, Crisis Averted, How Government Actions Keep Food Prices High, is available at our website, freetrade.org.